It was the worst case scenario that U.S. officials had feared and been warning about for days. On Thursday, terrorists launched two attacks outside Kabul's airport, killing 12 U.S. soldiers and wounding 15 others, with at least 60 Afghans dead and over 100 wounded. The attacks were, the U.S. military reported, a complex one in which one suicide bomber set off the first main bomb by a gate at the airport while ISIS gunmen opened fire on the crowd. Yet President Biden said the mission of evacuating Americans and Afghan partners will continue, even while vowing in a message to the attackers, we will hunt you down and make you pay. Still, the explosions cast a new pall over a humiliating U.S. exit from a country that is now effectively controlled by our sworn enemies for the past two decades, the Taliban. Few have been more critical of the U.S. retreat from Afghanistan than retired Army Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, President Trump's national security advisor from 2017 and 2018. We'll get his take on the terror attacks and what the U.S. should do now, and then we'll talk to Texas Congressman Mike McCall, the ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, about where he thinks things went wrong on this episode of Skullduggery. Hi. Do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Tan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Well, a pretty grim day, and I think we all were horrified by the images we saw about those uh, terror attacks on the uh, Kabul airport, the deaths of American soldiers. We were all kind of holding our breaths when we first saw the attacks, not knowing whether Americans were killed, and in fact, they were. It's the first American fatalities in Afghanistan. In over a year and a half since February 2020, and it may have been the largest single day of deaths in Afghanistan for American servicemen since 2011. That's a pretty bleak statistic when the U.S. is pulling out to come for that to come on the heels of our pullout. And uh, I think this is going to be, you know, we're not out of the woods. General McKenzie briefing today from the Pentagon, he's the commander of the Central Command, said there are ongoing serious credible threats of more attacks. It's just hard to see uh, this uh, being a bigger mess than it has uh, become. And, you know, it. you can understand why Biden wants to get out at this point as quickly as he possibly can, uh, because he clearly was seeing these intelligence threats that were very specific and, as we now know, tragically, very credible. But, you know, this is it has been an extraordinary operation. More than 100,000 people uh, evacuated in a very short period of time. But they can but, no longer claim, as Jen Psaki was a couple of days ago, that this was a great success, as she did from the podium. Well, no. My, but my point, my point is that an operation like this, done with such haste and in such a difficult security setting, just makes it 
that dangerous. And, I, you know, I think the, the question now is Biden is committed to, uh, to this August 31st deadline. He reiterated that in his uh, remarks today at, at the White House. And he's also said that he's committed to getting all of the Americans out and continuing to get their Afghan compatriots out. And so it seems like a contradiction. But what struck me, if you listen carefully to what he said, was that even after the August 31st deadline, we will continue to rescue Americans and others. So what does that mean? I think that suggests that we may be entering a new phase uh, of this operation. Tony Blinken, earlier this week, uh, I think on Wednesday, talked about how we would use diplomacy to get some of these people out of Afghanistan after yeah, well, the, that's not going to hunt after, the ISIS uh, attackers down after and August thirty first. But yeah, but I mean, but I think listening to Biden uh, closely, he was talking about using other means, using military means, perhaps using special operations forces, drone attacks, dr- drone attack. Well, no, no you're not going to rescue. People I'm talking friends. about. No, no, I'm talking about Biden's right. comment. We will hunt you down. Yeah, yeah but Mike, and that's not what I'm talking pay. about. Okay, <laughs> I, I, right. let's get. We'll get to that. But to get the Americans out, right. uh, you may you may see American forces on the ground, or possibly some have suggested resistance forces, uh, i.e., uh, some of these uh, uh, Northern Alliance forces who may be able to help us. But I think the. The point is, is that we're going to be living with this for some time, and I think it could get uh, more dramatic and more hairy. In some ways, my my mind immediately leapt ahead to the domestic politics implications of some of this. Not that I don't want to pause for a moment and reflect on the kind of incredibly sad story from today, but if you guys watched the Benghazi investigations and thought that was a pretty intense investigation of a blunder in kind of America's forces abroad. Just wait and see what the investigations of today are going to be like in Congress should the Republicans take over in 2022. It's it's going to make Benghazi look like child play um, in terms of investigations and the way they uh, kind of there's going to be a relentless, relentless investigations into what happened today. Right. Well, you already have, you know, prominent Republicans like Josh Holly, who never accepted the idea that Joe Biden was elected president in the first place, calling on the president to resign as a result of all this. Um, we're not there yet, but um, but clearly, the, I, I mean, the political fallout is going to be real and it's going to haunt this presidency. But I got to say, I want to come back to Biden's comments. We will hunt you down. We will not forget. We will respond to this attack which is kind of the standard thing presidents say after these terrorist attacks. In fact, um, that almost echoes exactly what Bill Clinton said after the USS Cole bombing in October of 2000, committed by al-Qaeda, which killed 17 American sailors. Uh, Actually, um, Clinton never responded to that attack, despite vowing to do so. So, you know, often these things depend on lots of circumstances. Is there good intelligence? Do we know who to attack? Do we know who to hold responsible for this? And it's not at all clear that we do. I think, um, you know, this um, this is as difficult a set of 
issues, foreign policy issues that I think any president has faced in a in a long time. And, and, and one of the and one of the questions, uh, Mike and, and Victoria, is if we do go after these terrorists um, in Afghanistan um, and we don't we're not able to do it with some kind of a pinprick drone strike, but actually, say, go in with special ops uh, to take some of these uh, terrorists out. You know, there is the dangerous of the, there is the uh, risk of getting sucked back in. And, you know, you have boots on the ground and then there's mission creep. And this, by the way, I think we're going to, you know, maybe hear some of this from our next next guest, uh, General McMaster, who I think uh, does not believe in the Biden administration's over the horizon counterterrorism strategy and um that uh, you know, at, at some point, uh, we may be not we may not be done uh, with this conflict, in part because of the way we have tried to get out, which is ironic. Right. All right. Well, uh, the endless war uh, may be far from over. I guess is the sort of bottom line to this. But uh, look, McMaster's got a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, some of them quite controversial, especially coming from a guy who served as national security advisor to Donald Trump. Um, so we'll see how he sorts that out. Uh, we've also got Mike McCall, uh, who is a um, Republican from Texas who is the ranking uh, minority member on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and has been very involved in Afghanistan as well. Uh, I should point out as we start that our interview with him took place before the terrorist attacks. So you won't see any re- hear any reference uh, to what happened on Thursday during that interview, but you will during McMaster's. So let's get to it. We are now joined by General H.R. McMaster, President Trump's former national security advisor. General, you have obviously been quite critical of President Biden's decision to pull out the troops as we speak. We've just gotten word about the explosions in Kabul today. Looks like there are casualties. Taliban is saying as many as 13 and three uh, U.S. troops wounded. How does this change the calculus, in your view, for President Biden, who had decided just yesterday to stick by the August 31 deadline. Do you think it should change his decision on that? And if there are significant U.S. casualties, what should the United States response be? Well, I think he has to assess the whole mission. I guess the big question is, what is the mission? Is the mission just to withdraw and complete a surrender to a terrorist organization? If that's the case, I guess just stick with the timeline. But if the mission is to get all U.S. citizens out, so the Haqqani Network, which is the number one taker of of hostages in that region and now is in charge of security in Kabul, doesn't turn this into into a, a humiliation like 1979 hostage crisis to add on top of the humiliation we're seeing now, which is evocative of the 1975 evacuation of Saigon. So what's the mission, I think would be the first question. Do you want us, if the the question the military advisor should ask, do you want us to get everybody out? We can do that, but the president then has to muster the will uh, to be able to commit to that mission and provide the resources and the authorities necessary to make it happen. And it won't be without cost, you know, but hey, as as soldiers, you know, we, we 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 expect to be in harm's way, right? Just following up on that, it's Dan Clydman, General McMaster. 
if the mission is, should be, as you just described it, to make sure that we get all Americans out, how should that change our posture there? You talked about making sure we have the resources to, to do that. What, what would that mean realistically? Would that mean putting more troops in, do you think? Well, yes. You know, and the timeline would have to change for sure. I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't say we're going to stick to the timeline and we're to get all Americans out and we're going to get all the Afghans out who are at grave risk for having supported us, defended us, worked with us over two decades. So I guess the question again is, what is the mission? You would have to commit additional troops. I think you see now you know, the, the need to establish a, a broader perimeter than, than you have. Really, you see it from satellite imagery of Kabul airport, how the city comes right up to the gates of the airport. So if you're just sitting at the perimeter, there's no real way to have an active defense in sufficient depth to prevent this kind of a mass, mass casualty event. And then, hey, there might have to be other safe areas open, right? Other ways to extract people or, or for egress. And then the use of military capabilities, not necessarily uh, soldiers on the ground, but military capabilities to ensure safe passage along routes that get to and maybe alternative safe area. So, you know, you, you have the ability to impose your will and to establish those safe areas. Uh, it, the question is, do, do you have the will to follow through on it? You're saying that the mission ought to be to get all Americans out, just not to withdraw our troops. I should point out that uh, just today, the U.S. Embassy, after these two explosions took place in Kabul, one right outside the airport gate, issued a, a bulletin to American citizens, U.S. citizens should avoid traveling to the airport and avoid airport gates at this time. Those U.S. citizens who are outside those gates should leave immediately. So it sounds like, at a minimum, this is going to set back the goal of getting the remaining 1,500 or so Americans out of the country. So I want you to react to that, but sort of more broadly, we've just had a terrorist attack that has injured at least some American troops. We don't know the full casualty numbers yet. Does the United States need to respond to that terrorist attack? And if so, what does that response look like? Who do we attack? Where? How do we go after the people who did this? Well, we have a lot of means to go after them. The question is, though, will they be able to hold us hostage, right? Hold those that are at the airport hostage, hold those who are trying to get to the airport hostage. So this is the cost, right? This is the cost of surrendering to a jihadist terrorist organization. This is the cost of the Trump administration's deal in February of 2020 to capitulate to the Taliban, to enter negotiations without the participation of the Afghan government, then to insist that the Afghan government released 5,000 of some of the most heinous people on earth who went right back to terrorizing the Afghan people, went right back to the battlefield. And now what you've seen are the, the results of the psychological blows we delivered to the Afghans by saying, hey, hey we're leaving. You know, we don't have your back anymore. Good luck with that. And of course, what the Taliban did is they took the boost we gave them psychologically and went to those Afghan leaders and said, okay, we've got a deal for you. How about either you come to terms with us or we kill your families? How about that? So that's why we've seen this rapid collapse. It was all predictable, I believe, based on the psychological blows we delivered. Now, having surrendered to a terrorist organization, you know, we're seeing that we, you, you actually lose agency and influence unless you reverse course. I guess an early question would be, 
Dan, you know, are, are, are we going to continue to empower the Taliban at the Afghan people's expense? We keep talking about, well, we need to engage the Taliban on the future of Afghanistan. Hey, it's worth pointing out that the Asia Society, who's been doing polls there for tw- the last 20 years, had the highest level of support ever for, for the Taliban at 13%. How about engaging other Afghans on the future of the country? How about engaging Amrullah Saleh, who's in control of the Panjshir Valley now and just retook four districts from the Taliban by force? You know, I mean, I, I think it's time to reverse course, to recognize that we have put ourselves and the world at a much higher degree of danger by giving, giving a country uh, to, to the Taliban and allowing them to, to reestablish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Let's be more specific about what you mean by reversing course and engaging some of the other Afghans in that country who who we might be able to engage. Are you talking about really supporting an insurgency, a kind of a reconstitution of the Northern Alliance in the north of Afghanistan to continue this war against the Taliban and hopefully prevail at some point? And what does that support look like, American support? Well, I, I think I think that's going to be a decision for the president to, to make at some stage. I think the sooner he, he, he uh, considers it, the better. Because you know what? I mean, this, the sad thing about this, Dan and Mike, is we're going to be back, right? I mean, think about December of 2011. Then Vice President Biden called up President Obama on the phone and he said, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war. Well, hey, guess what? You know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq didn't look around and say, hey, the Americans are gone. I guess we'll just stop. And so what you had is al-Qaeda in Iraq morph into ISIS, the most destructive terrorist uh, organization in in history, which took control of of territory the size of Britain that conducted about 200 attacks internationally, including shooting down an airliner, multiple attacks in Europe, including on the Brussels airport. And then we had to go back. Right. We had to go back and wage a sustained campaign against ISIS. I mean, that's what we're facing now is the growth of jihadist terrorists in one of the ideological hearts of jihadist terrorism, the so-called Khorasan region, which spans the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, an area in which 20 U.S.-designated terrorist organizations already exist. And you know what? We try too darn hard to disconnect the dots between them. You know, we, we bought into the self-delusion that there's this bold lie between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Maybe they'll help us with al-Qaeda. Hey, come on. Siraj Haqqani is the military commander of the Taliban. He is, he is a prominent leader within al-Qaeda as the head of the Haqqani network. And guess what? He's the number one taker of U.S. hostages, and he's the master of mass murder attacks in urban areas. That's what the Haqqani network brought in terms of their differential advantage to jihadist terrorism. And he's in charge now of Kabul, and he's in charge of security overall in the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So we are in for a period of increasing danger And what we saw today is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. When I asked you before about a response, you said we have lots of ways to respond, but you didn't explain what they are. Given that this appears to be ISIS-K, which is not the Taliban, it's a jihadi group that is, if anything, more extreme than the Taliban, be specific. How would you, if you had your previous job as national security advisor, advise the president right now to respond to an attack like this? Do we more bombings? Bombings where? Do we send more troops? What specifically would you recommend? Well, you have to present a range of options. And then, of course, when you do that, they have to be oriented on a specific objective. What's the objective, right? Is the objective just to get out and American citizens that remain and and Afghans who are clamoring to get out be damned, right? 
If, if that's the mission, you're looking at a whole different range of option sets. If, if the mission is, is to, you know, again, engage against jihadist terrorists who, who are a threat to us, then it's a whole different range of options. And you have to think about it in terms of time, not just in the next week between now and the, the Taliban's, you know, August 31st deadline, which, the, you know, the world's you know, only superpower is adhering to, right, because we surrendered to them, because we defeated ourselves. If that's the mission, that's a whole different range of options than if the mission is to inflict losses on and combat again jihadist terrorists who, by the way, you know, are a threat to all civilized peoples, right? I mean, there's this, these groups are intertwined. I would not be surprised at all if ISIS-K, in fact, I'd be surprised if this wasn't the case, is being used by the Haqqani network as a cutout to attack us and humiliate us on our way out because they are declaring victory. They've already declared victory over us. And what that will do is bring more people to the jihadist cause, just like ISIS's establishment of the Islamic, of their Islamic emirate uh, in the land between the two rivers in Iraq and in Syria, allowed them to recruit 30 to 40,000 terrorists at the drop of a hat, right? So, so this, is, this is just beginning, guys. And, and the question is, what is the mission? Right. What is your conception of the threat uh, to Americans and international security broadly and to Afghans? And do you give a damn about it? Are you going to do anything about it? How about uh, there's another set of options or another set of missions, which could be a humanitarian mission. I mean, we are going to see horrible image after horrible image. Well, the last time the Taliban was in control, there were no cell phones in Afghanistan between 96 and 2001. Now everybody has one. And we're just going to confront the steady drumbeat of horrors uh, inflicted on, on, the, on the Afghan people. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to give a damn? Or will this be like Rwanda? We'll just say, oh, you know, later we can write a, a, a right to, pr- to protect doctrine if you're Samantha Power, who's in the administration now. And I wonder how she feels, you know, about this humanitarian crisis, which we set the conditions for. Right. So I, I would just tell you, it, it depends on the mission. And, it, and, and of course, uh, it depends on the level of risk and cost you're willing to accept to accomplish that mission. I just want to follow up on my uh, previous question. Before I do that, I'm hearing from our producers that uh, the U.S. is saying this was a highly complex attack leading to multiple civilian and U.S. casualties, but perhaps we'll be hearing more about that soon. You said, General, earlier that President Biden is going to have to make the decision whether or not to arm assist militarily and otherwise uh, a resistance uh, that's forming in the north of the country. But Isakov was asking you before what your advice would be to the president if you were in your previous position as national security advisor. So on that question as well, what would you be telling President Biden? Should we be arming the resistance in the north of Afghanistan? Well, I think you have, you have to have established some short-term goals and some long-term goals, right? And, and the, short, the short-term goal should be you know, to get all American citizens and those Afghans who are at the, at the highest risk, who have helped us, the hell out of there, right? Now, if that's your set of objectives, you're going to have to make some tough decisions. You're going to have to extend the timeline. You probably will have to extend the security perimeter there. But then also, I think it is not too soon. In fact, it's probably overdue to have a longer conversation of, hey, is it really acceptable to have a jihadist terrorist state in Afghanistan next to the terrorist ecosystem that exists in Pakistan, a nuclear armed country? I mean, and the risk associated to American citizens and our homeland associated with that. And if not, then I think there, there has to be a discussion about what options exist to ensure that that doesn't happen. And, and I think, again, stop 
empowering the Taliban? Why is the U.S. envoy who negotiated the capitulation agreement, who made concession after concession and was instrumental in delivering these psychological blows to the Afghans, why is he still our envoy and is sitting across the table uh, from these Taliban actors who are already uh, you know, allowing, I believe, facilitating the attack that we just saw? I think it's unconscionable. How about step one, recall him? How about step two, extend the timeline? How about step three, deploy the forces you need necessary to guarantee safety, although it's extremely difficult with that Kabul airport. But making it clear to the Taliban, hey, you think you're in charge now? You know, that could be reversed. That could be reversed quite easily. We have the capability to do it. And again, the question is, do we have the will to do it? And, and, And again, of course, associated with that, what is the mission? Is the mission just to complete our surrender and to leave the field there in humiliation and leave behind American citizens and leave behind Afghans who will be mercilessly brutalized and taken hostage? Or is the mission to get them the hell out of there? General, to state the obvious here, you have pinpointed and highlighted what you call the surrender agreement that was negotiated by Khalilzad with the Taliban. That was under the direction of the president you served. You worked for Donald Trump, and he made the decision to accept that peace agreement. He made the decision to pull out troops by May 1st of this year. Let me just point out, that was after I left, okay? And and I think it's worth looking at. When uh, the, the August 2017 decision that President Trump made for a South Asia strategy, as you point out, that was all reversed. And ironically, paradoxically, what happened is Trump actually doubled down on all the flaws of the Obama administration, right? I mean, this, this, this complete ineptitude in our strategy in Afghanistan really begins, you know, I, I would say from the early days by not considering what, what was necessary to consolidate gains and get to a sustainable political outcome and, you know, taking a short-term approach to what was a long-term problem there. But it was the Obama administration and President Obama himself at a speech at, at my alma mater, West Point, he said, okay, we're going to reinforce the security effort in Afghanistan. And, and hey, here's the schedule for their withdrawal. And by the way, then we're going to enter into negotiations with the Taliban. I mean, how the hell does that work? Where you tell them you're leaving and then you try to get a deal. Trump reversed that. In the, and I, it's worth going back to his August 2017 speech. And then reversed but, you know, himself I was gone, and made the right? decision. And people got in his ear. The neo-isolationist far right basically got in his ear and convinced him to double down on the Obama administration's flawed approach. And then Biden, President Biden, has doubled down on that again. Right. So. So, hey, there's a lot of blame to go around here. And, and this is not a partisan issue. This should be an American issue. And we should demand better from our political leaders. You know, and, and I'll tell you, our, you know, I hear all these images evoked of headstones in Arlington and the cost that our soldiers have borne. But you know what? Not, no soldier that I know wants anybody's pity. What they want is they want political leadership who will help achieve an outcome that's worthy of the sacrifices they make and the risks that they take. And I think you're seeing the absence of that will on the part of our political leaders. And I think the American people need to learn more about our enemy. We, never, we haven't talked about the enemy, right? Only when we see these attacks do, do, do we begin to consider the utter brutality of this enemy we're fighting. So was it worth it? Was it worth it to prevent these people from taking over Afghanistan? I would say yes, in terms of a sustained commitment under which the Afghans were bearing the brunt of that fight. And we had very few troops there. And we were spending about 2.5% of our defense budget in Afghanistan uh, when we capitulated to the Taliban. Let me pick up on that and, and sort of go a little deeper into the, the roots of uh, how we ended up where we are now. In your book, Battlegrounds, you use this phrase strategic narcissism, which is a kind of um, 
tendency to see the world the, the way we want it to be as opposed to the way it is. And it's a kind of an underpinning of our policy failures in Afghanistan under both Republicans and, and Democrats. But how do you respond to the criticism that the entire project in Afghanistan was in a, in a sense an example of strategic uh, narcissism? I mean, this whole notion that the United States could invade Afghanistan, expel the Taliban and al-Qaeda, you know, stand up a new government, build a new military, and then leave it to the Afghans to figure out the rest. Isn't that a kind of strategic narcissism or, or hubris, to use another phrase? Well, I think this is one of the big arguments, right, for withdrawal is that, hey, it was always an impossible mission. Hey, I, I just don't buy it, right? I think, I think that, that what, what we uh, should recognize is that, hey, Afghanistan was never going to be Denmark. But Afghanistan didn't need to be Denmark, right? Afghanistan was going to continue as a as, as a decentralized sort of sort of uh, nation state uh, with a high degree of autonomy within certain provinces and associate with certain ethnic groups, and and it was always going to be a violent place, right? I mean, you know, you still had the Taliban in control of, of of rural areas and making some gains, but also suffering losses there. But hey, look at the alternative. What we're seeing is the alternative now. And, and was it worth it to sustain the effort in Afghanistan if they were on a slow path toward weaning themselves off international support when, in fact, we had more coalition troops than we had U.S. troops there at the time when we were enabling Afghans to bear the brunt of the fight? I think, heck, yes, it was worth it, right? And I think it's worth pointing out, hey, I mean, there are no short-term solutions to long-term problems, right? And I think an example is, is Korea, right? After in, in Korea in 1953, it looked pretty damn bad, right? You had a country that had been ravaged by decades of, of war and brutal occupation, no natural resources, an illiterate population, a corrupt government, and a hostile neighbor. And, you know, we kept over 100,000 troops there through the 50s, tens of thousands, you know, uh, up till today. And we actually endured a major insurgency there from, from 67 to 68. 15 American soldiers died, 65 were wounded. People forget about that. But look at South Korea today. But, you know, South Korea's success didn't happen, really, until economic reforms in the 70s and political reforms in the 1980s, right? So was it worth it? I think now you're seeing evidence that, hell yes, it was worth it. And the small amount of effort we had in Afghanistan was a pretty reasonable insurance premium to pay to prevent what we're seeing now from happening. General, your book previous to that, Dereliction of Duty, is the classic account of how the military tailored its assessments to the White House to provide Lyndon Johnson's White House with what it wanted to hear. And as a result, the American public was misled. A lot of people see a lot of parallels between what you wrote about in Vietnam and the, the many failures of the military in, in Vietnam with what took place in Afghanistan. And all you have to do is look at the Afghanistan papers that have been published by the Washington Post showing the gap between what was being said publicly by the White House and the American military with what they were saying internally. Does the military hold responsibility here for not being honest and candid about the lack of progress we were making in Afghanistan. Well, I can just talk to my personal experience. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I was always candid about it, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe to a fault. I mean, I think I offended a lot of people uh, when I was in positions of responsibility in both Afghanistan and in Iraq. And I was part of reviews where I, you know, the first slide that I briefed senior commanders in Washington was, we are losing because we're not winning and we're running out of time, and then went to point out all of the deficiencies in, in our approach to, to the war. So I believe that that advice was, was available internally. You know, I've seen the, you know, the so-called Afghanistan papers. I do believe 
that nobody uh, was misled within the administration. Now, the contrast between public and, and private statements, I, I, just, I haven't really compared those in the way that I did uh, during the run-up to Vietnam, but I think it's worth looking at. What you don't want is military leaders who are prone to optimism bias, toward confirmation bias. Did you expect the, Amer the Afghan military to fold the way they did once the uh, troop withdrawal began? Did you expect that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. Because look at what we right did, away. right? Look, look at what we did. Hey, look, look at what we did, right? We said, we said we're going to sit down with the Taliban and essentially negotiate our withdrawal. Afghan government, stay on the sidelines. What did that do for the legitimacy of the Afghan government? Then what did we do? We forced them to release 5,000 prisoners for nothing. We did not insist on a ceasefire. And then we said, hey, we're pulling out. We're leaving. And we removed all of the Afghan army's asymmetrical advantages that they were dependent on, right? Our surveillance and reconnaissance and intelligence capabilities and our air support mainly. Once we did that, guess what? The Taliban retained their asymmetrical advantages, which is their unscrupulousness and their utter brutality and their ability to incite fear. Fear not only of losing your own life if you serve in, in the Afghan security forces, but fear that they will kill your entire family. And when they took over those areas in the north, they did that to prevent the reconstitution of a Northern Alliance opposition to the Taliban, but they also did it to place Afghan soldiers and leaders' families at direct risk. And that's when they said to them, hey, here's the deal we have for you. We'll kill your families or you come to an accommodation with us. The psychological in war, the moral in war, as Napoleon said, is to the physical as of 10 to 1. We did everything we could, it seemed, to psychologically defeat the Afghan forces on our way out. And that's what bugs the hell out of me, guys, I'll tell you. I mean, if we were just, if we were just going to leave, why don't we just leave? Why the hell did we empower the Taliban on our way out? And why is the U.S. envoy there continuing to empower them? Why are we empowering them with our words? And we say, well, we really need to engage the Taliban about the future of Afghanistan. How about engaging Afghans broadly, you know, who, who are suffering uh, from the Taliban already and who are fleeing the country because they know that they're about to live in hell? We want to thank you, General McMaster, for your time, your insights. We really appreciate it. We now have with us Congressman Mike McCall, the ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. No, thanks for having me, Mike. You have been quite critical of uh, the president's handling of the uh, Afghanistan pullout. You said the other day that the president has blood on his hands. I want to just start out with uh, President Biden has said he plans to stick to the August 31 pullout date. And a big reason is the threat that there could be an ISIS-K attack on the Americans at the airport. You've been at a number of briefings from the folks handling all this. What can you tell us about the nature of this threat, how serious it is, and how we got to the point where a threat from ISIS is forcing our hand? Right. Well, I mean, the threat's real. I can't go into detail uh, in the classified space, but you know, ISIS-K is a, a sworn enemy of the Taliban. They, interestingly, they, they don't like each other. And uh, the Taliban has circled the perimeter of the airport. And so there are concerns that ISIS-K could pull off a terror attack at, at the airport. Uh, that's about as far as I can go with that. But 
you know, we, we Isn't really that a kinda, good reason for the president to pull out the troops then? If, yeah, if but there's I, you know, a real threat to Americans? You know, unfortunately, I, it's, it's a self-inflicted wound. We've created this nightmare. And I go back to, you know, I go back to after the president made his decision. You know, I had uh, Ambassador Crockett and I wrote an op-ed in New York Times. And, and you look back on it, it's very prescient. We, call, we basically advise the administration, now that you've done this, you have to follow your intelligence assessments, get your American citizens out, your interpreters, Afghan partners out, and then establish ISR intelligence surveillance on the ground. None of that was done. We waited till the very last minute to start evacuating. And you can see it's, it's been ill-planned and ill-conceived, and, and it's not going very well. And it could have been different. And um, as to an arbitrary deadline, I, I think... Just like the decision itself in the beginning to get out, it should have been conditions-based without a deadline of 9-11. This, when I talk to the military, you know, they tell me, look, give us a mission, we'll accomplish it, but don't put me on an arbitrary deadline that I can't achieve. And the fact is, Mike, there's no way we're going to be able to get every American out by August 31st. And the Afghan interpreters who are being harassed at the airport by the Taliban, as I speak, and some are being executed, they've got a bullseye and a death warrant on their backs now. I don't see how we can conceivably get them out of country with this August 31st deadline. The only hope, and it's you know fanciful, is that we can trust the Taliban to keep the airport open and allow our, our aircraft, our planes to go in and, and save both American citizens and Afghan partners and interpreters from what will happen when the Taliban gets to them. So a couple of quick points here. First of all, you said it isn't going very well, the evacuation, but they did. They have gotten 80,000 people out. That's, you know, that's a pretty impressive number. But, you know, more broadly, President Trump had agreed to this uh, pullout date and, and an agreement with the Taliban in February 2020. It was his decision to pull out the troops. And also 5,000 Taliban prisoners were released as part of that. When you say that President Biden has blood on his hands, isn't there, doesn't that have to be shared with the first president who agreed to pull all our troops out at an earlier date than Biden is doing? And look, I, I think this president wants to blame everyone but himself. He made this decision and he owns it, and he needs, he needs to take responsibility for his decision. I, I will walk you through uh, these allegations. I think, look, I, I, I get what you're saying, but here's, here are the facts. They reached a conditions-based agreement in February, and there are many conditions attached to that. One was that they had to cut their ties with al-Qaeda, and if they hit any provincial capital, we would respond with force. I've talked to Secretary Pompeo and National Security Advisor O'Brien extensively about the thinking within the White House at that time. They knew that for a transitional government to take place, they would necessarily have to get the Taliban to play a part of that. But every time the Taliban violated this agreement, we hit them with airstrikes and we hit them hard. I don't have to remind you the Moab bomb that he dropped in Afghanistan. There's no way that I believe that President Trump, and you know him, everybody knows his personality, would have sat back for an unconditional surrender to the Taliban. It's not in his DNA. 
And he would not have allowed us to get to this point. That's why I think what would have happened, we get, it's all hypothetical, right? And we're just trying to speculate, but I don't think uh, he would have agreed to zero without these conditions being met. But, but what Biden did was zero. He would completely withdrew, completely withdrew with the timetable of September the 11th. I'll give you an anecdotal story. I was in the White House when we were discussing Syria. He was thinking about pulling out of Syria. And I said, sir, you remember what your predecessor did in Iraq? He pulled out completely, and then we got ISIS in the caliphate. I said, you don't repeat the mistakes of your predecessor. And he, he agreed. He kept the residual force. He liked the oil fields being there. I am I'm, uh, not convinced of this argument he would have drawn down to zero. And he certainly wouldn't have done it this well, way. That, that's what the agreement that, they, that that Pompeo reached with the Taliban called for, to, to pull out all American troops by May, for, uh, by based May upon 1st. The con, based right, upon right. conditions. So just two quick questions here. In your, dis- McMaster, H.R. McMaster, the first, or the second national security advisor under Trump, has called that agreement a surrender agreement, Trump's agreement. So- and that was his top national security advisor calling it that. And secondly, in your discussions with Pompeo and Robert O'Brien in recent weeks, did they tell you they had any plan at all to evacuate all the Afghan interpreters, translators, and everybody who worked with us in Afghanistan? Did they have plans to do that before May 1st? Again, I don't think they would have withdrawn to zero on May 1st, but just assuming that, yes, plans were placed in front of the president. One interesting conversation O'Brien had, they told me that they talked about another Saigon. And according to the former national security advisor, O'Brien, Trump said, I will not allow for another Saigon on my watch. And I think that speaks, you know, volumes about what they were thinking. I personally, I know Pompeo and O'Brien really well. They think kind of like I do. Well, first of all, I never believed in this fantasy we could negotiate with the Taliban. I'll just be honest with you. But secondly, they were big residual force uh, you know, promoters. I think they they would have probably tried to convince them to keep. You know, remember, they went from 15,000 to 2,500. They had a very, very light footprint and 6,500 NATO. To, and that was a small insurance chip to stabilize Afghanistan and keep the Taliban at bay with airstrikes. Now we pulled out our ISR capability, the embassy shut, and Mike, we're dark. We we can't see inside, we can't see in country, we can't see Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, This is a major strategic failure when I talk to the intelligence community about what we've lost and what we can't see and how we've handed our adversaries a victory. So, Congressman, you know, we've had a a week of very intense criticism of the Obama administration and President Biden himself. And I'm not saying, suggesting at all that that's not appropriate. We obviously have to learn the lessons of of this debacle. But we also used to say that politics ends at the water's edge uh, in this country. And you're the the ranking member, uh, the most senior Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So I guess I want to ask you about What's the prescriptive element here? What do you think at this point uh, mm-hmm. should be done to deal with the problem that we have, not just the short term, but the longer yep. term? You mentioned our intelligence capabilities. You know, and, and what are you specifically doing to actually uh, make a contribution here in terms of talking to the Biden administration if they'll take your calls? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I had a, uh, the chairman and I, I'm the top Republican of Foreign Affairs, held a 
classified briefing for the entire House of Representatives uh, yesterday. And I did meet with Secretary uh, Blinken, talked to Secretary Austin, talked to General uh, Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and the, you know, the DNI, who, again, the intelligence community got this right. The, this administration disregarded their assessment, didn't listen to them, but they were right. And if there's anything that was done wrong here, it's they didn't listen to the, the people on the ground that knew what was happening. But having said that, I think your point is very constructive. Okay, this has happened. How can we move forward? That's precisely what Ambassador Crocker and I, we, we, had, a, we had a decision writing the New York Times piece was, okay, can we criticize him for the decision to completely withdraw the timetable? Or do we advise him as to what he needs to do moving forward to avoid a major catastrophe? And Ambassador Crocker is, is one of the finest. And he served under Obama, by the way. Disregard every recommendation. I, had they taken up some of our recommendations, we're probably in a better place today. But as it stands right now, I believe that many of those who fought with our special forces will be executed. They cannot get out of there. There are American citizens trapped, and we talk to them on the phone every day, thousands of calls coming through this committee, as we're the kind of the, the clearinghouse, thousands of them trapped over there pleading for their lives to get out. That's the situation on the ground. But I would argue that, look, you need a, a counterterrorism mission. You have to establish intelligence, surveillance, recognizance. You shut down Bagram so we can't see or hear. No eyes and ears were dark. But we have to find a country. And I've talked to the secretary about this. Afghanistan's landlocked. You have an ocean. So you need a, a surrounding country that's friendly. And there aren't very many of them. If you look at the map, you get China, Russia, and Iran a place where we can put our counterterrorism mission in place. And that would be our intelligence capability, logistics, a place where we can see inside country to see the threats, and then a capability to respond to the threat when it gets to an external operation. I know a lot about that because when I chaired Homeland, and Mike, you know this, when I chaired Homeland Security Committee, at that time, at the height of the caliphate and ISIS, we had probably an external operation we were briefed on every month and we were very successful at taking most of them down, but it's that kind of capability that I'm talking about. I don't think we ever should have gotten a nation building. I think occupying a country that's been occupied for thousands of years by empires unsuccessfully was necessarily a very good idea, but I do believe in a counterterrorism mission. And it's a shame that general wall that did Tora Bora got so close to bin Laden one wonders what history would be like today if we just taken him out from the very beginning. I don't think we would have had the diversion into Iraq, and I, I don't think we'd be occupying Afghanistan, but it is what it is now. And I think that's a great question. It's very constructive. And that would, that is my advice to the administration. Uh, let me ask you a question about the interpreters and uh, the, a variety of allies who are possibly about to get stranded in Afghanistan. They could have gotten out possibly under the special immigrant visa program that was established by Congress, but that has been criticized for being extraordinarily slow. bureaucratic, slow, and difficult to accomplish. Couldn't Congress have acted years ago to streamline that process and to reduce the requirements and made it easier for many of these people to get those visas? It's a great question. The, the special immigrant visa program was never intended for an evacuation of this size and scale. It just simply is, it's too bureaucratic, it's too slow. And I, I just had this conversation with Chairman Meeks, the two of us and the Deputy Secretary of State who briefed us. We have to fix that. 
we've Congress needs to fix the SIV program. It's just it, it it's it is not um, again it, it wasn't the intention of Congress to handle evacuation on this scale. This is probably the largest evacuation mission ever conducted by the United States government. I think it's beyond Saigon now, and uh, certainly with Iran, you're going to see a lot of hostages now in Afghanistan, though a lot of Americans. But to your point, that is something constructive Congress can do is fix the SIV program so that, you know, we're, we're going to have another one in this century, I'm sure. And we need one that's a little more agile and a little more flexibility and can work more quickly because state is hampered by these very arcane rules. Uh, well, Congressman, uh, we got lots more we could be asking you about, <laughs> including uh, the Wuhan lab situation, which I know you're well, we'll very do that up on. on. The next one. I, I just want to ask the the estimates, uh, Congressman, are that that there may be around a hundred thousand Afghan citizens who who worked alongside our uh, service members and diplomats and assisted in in this mission, you know, over the last uh, twenty years, and if you include their families. That number balloons to at least 500,000, possibly some people have even said as many as a million people. We're not going to get that many people out by August 31st. But do you think we should bring all of those people who helped us and who, in many cases, you know, really sacrificed on behalf of our mission? Do you think we should bring them all into this country? I think they should go to this country. I think they should go to our NATO allied uh, countries. And uh, this morning, getting briefed by state, the encouraging news is there have been so many countries stepping up to the plate saying, we want to take them in. Uh, we want to help in this, what will be a humanitarian crisis. And my response on the interpreters is absolutely. That is the American thing to do. We made a promise to them, a moral obligation that if they fought alongside us, and remember any platoon leader has their radio guy and their interpreter. The interpreter knows the, the, the enemy and knows the language. And they put their lives on the line for our troops. And every veteran I talk to, they are absolute in this, that they were my brother. They treated them like a brother. They were one of them. And they are our best voices, I think, to stand up for them, to hold that promise up and true. And what's so sad is that I'm afraid a lot of them will be left behind. Uh, I can tell you, uh, Michael Waltz, a good story, member of Congress, his interpreter's name was Little Spartacus. Little Spartacus was trying to get through, through this airport this, this week. And he got turned around. They took him back to his home and they executed his family in front of him. And then they beheaded him. And that's what they're looking at. We, the American thing to do is to get them out into a safe country, whether it be the United States or our allies. Thank you, Congressman. Thanks, Congressman. Good seeing you. Okay. 